Let's stand and take our Bibles this morning, John chapter 12, John chapter 12. Good to see you here in church this morning, and uh, pray that you'll come join us on Wednesday night for our, our midweek service as we look forward on that eve of having a uh, message to prepare us for July 4th. Encourage you to be back tonight. We're going to have a great evening service tonight, and we just a number of announcements of things coming up we want to tell you about, and preaching and, th- and singing, and we'll be a good time in church today. Over there in John chapter 12, please, John chapter 12. We're doing a series entitled Nothing But the Truth, and we are in a chapter that has just so many good nuggets in it. I wish I had time to preach on all of them in this series, but we don't. And if you're, uh, if you're here in the church, you're new to the church, I'm going to ask our members to look around. If they can help you find your place and share their Bibles with you, you want to be reading from a King James Version of the Bible so you understand what's going on here. So please follow that this morning. Say amen if you're there. Amen. Verse 12. Go, go with me to verse 12, please. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass, ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. I call your attention to several verses this morning. And if you would, just maybe just put a circle next to the number. I want you to notice verse 3 today. Verse 3 says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And then I want you to notice, if you would, verse 13, which we just read. They said, it says here, they took branches of palm leaves and uh, palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna. You want to underline the word Hosanna, I'm going to tell you what that word means in a minute. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Then I want you to go on a little bit further. Notice verse 24. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Then I want you to go down and look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Then I want you to notice, if you would, verse uh, 48. He that rejecteth me and rejecteth not, and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now, believe it or not, all of this seamlessly is pulled together. These are not separate topics, so they can preach as separate topics. All of this seamlessly it is pulled together, and the central theme I call your attention to is verse 13, about Jesus Christ and the worship of Jesus Christ. How many believe this morning we are here to worship the Lord? Amen? We're not here to worship man. We're not here to worship some hero. We're not here to worship our buildings. We're not here to worship any of that. The only person here that's deserving worship is God and God alone. 
And our thigh title this morning, I want you to look at today as we'll pull this together. We're going to look at the subject of worship on this day. We're going to look at the subject, no king but Jesus. No king but Jesus. Now, Father, thank you today. Our, our, our hearts have been really moved and uh, our cup is overflowing when we think about what we've heard about uh, songs that exalt the Lord the what you've done liberty and, and here in this country and liberty and we thank you for America and and the fact that it was founded upon Christian principles and Bible principles our very first president George Washington was a Christian we thank you for that we thank you God that the Word of God has been revered and held up in high esteem we realize there, there's a segment of the country that's gone away from God, but thank God for the 7,000 that have not bowed their knees. And today as we assemble here, Lord, I pray that you would, you would prepare us with a sense of anticipation. I pray that you prepare us, God, with a sense of worship, a sense of God receiving the word of God. We pray that you'd cleanse us today from sin. The Bible says, sanctify thy people through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And the Bible says that we are cleansed by the washing of water by the word. And Jesus said, now you're clean by the word, through the word which I've spoken to you. And Lord, we can only be clean if we come truthfully before the word of God. We pray today as we come forward today in the word of God, we pray the truth of your word would resonate and speak to our hearts. Give understanding. Help me to take this complex chapter and make it understandable so that your people will have their souls fed and their lives energized. And God, that there will be a greater sense of attraction, of, of worshiping Jesus Christ today. Help us to dwell richly in the word of Christ in all wisdom today that you might be glorified. Thank you for this in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. On April 22nd, 1774, before the revolutionary war began between America and Great Britain, King George III of England sent some representatives to the governor of Boston. And he said to him, he said, I heard, I heard some rumors about your, your group that came over that immigrated from Britain over to here. And he said, uh, he said, I heard that if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none nor any governor but Jesus Christ. And not long after that, in April of 1775, when the British major called, called on the colonists villains, and, 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 and he called them villains and told them to lay down their arms, they responded to him. He said, you need to lay down your arms and you need to vow and call King George III, your king, the colonialists in unison, in unison, not majority vote, in unison cried out and said, we recognize no sovereign but God and our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that this morning because we're in a day and age of time, there's many things and many people calling upon you and I to bow our knee to that. They're calling us to bow our knee to its ideologies and things of nature. But I remind you as Christians, as blood-bought people of God people, that we bow for no one except for Jesus Christ. We must say like the apostles, as persecution arises and evil men and seducers wax worse and some may be bound, I remind you this morning the word of God is never bound. And I remind you today we must adopt the same uh, idea and the same principle and conviction that Peter and John had in Acts 5.29 when they said we must obey God rather than man. And we're not calling for civil disobedience. No, not even anywhere near that. We believe that all of the powers that are were ordained of God. Government authorities ordained of God. They are God's ordination. God ordained them and put them where they're at. And they're to prevent, they're a deterrent for evil. But we must understand there are some who are in political circles and persuasion who would rather take our country away from God and change the idea and the definition of what's moral and right. And they would change some things. And what used to be called sin, they'll say it's not sin. And what used to be called wrong, wrong they'll call it right. We must understand, we, to have a clear perspective of everything, we must go back to the Word of God and ask ourselves, what does God's word say about that matter. And so as we look at that today, 
I want to consider in this passage how it's so important as we look at John chapter 12, the emphasis today about Jesus Christ being king. Notice in the scriptures we read in verse 13, a great host of people in Jerusalem had, were there watching Jesus ride into the city of Jerusalem. He had come down from Bethany. He was riding to the city on, on top of, a, of an ass's colt. This was an ass's colt that had never been ridden a donkey, if you would, that had never been ridden on a man. And thank God today that there was at least a donkey that said it save itself for Jesus. And may I ask you this morning, maybe you consider in your heart that you give Jesus your heart and let him have control. But Jesus rode on this donkey to the city of Jerusalem. And kings normally rode on donkeys. I'll say something more about that later. And as he came into that city, they thought, oh, he's done all these miracles. And oh, he's done all these great things. And, and uh, certainly, <coughs> he must now be here to lead a revolt and, uh, against the Roman Empire, which the Jews despised. And they cried out, Hosanna, which in, is in our vernacular, would say, God save the king. That was a way they said that, and I'll tell you where that all originated from. But they said, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. And their idea of a king was not the idea that Jesus was presenting there, but we'll say more about that a little bit later. But we see these people here, they're assembled there, and they're mesmerized with Jesus because in the chapter before that we studied, the chapter before we saw in, in John chapter 11 last week how Jesus, his one last great miracle before he rose from the dead was raising Lazarus from the dead. And of course, word spread around and there was a buzz throughout all the major cities. Bethany heard about it and the seaside of Galilee heard about it and Jerusalem heard about it. There was a buzz going on that Jesus had raised this man from the dead and this man, had, as we'll see in John chapter 12, was sitting at a table and many came to look and find uh, Lazarus to see for real that this man really get raised from the dead there. And so people were mesmerized. They wanted to see more miracles, and they wanted to see more signs. But the, the, the essence of why Christ was there was not for signs or miracles. The essence why Christ was there was that people would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I may say to you this morning, maybe you came to Heritage Baptist Church because somebody knocked on your door, and somebody gave you a track, and somebody invited you to church. And thank God if you have a friend that invited you to church, thank God your friend invited you to church. And maybe somebody told you to come because they said, you ought to come see the buildings that we have here. And you ought to come see what God is doing here on the campus, and we're thankful for all of that. But everybody say today, if we didn't have the buildings, and if we didn't have the chairs, and if we didn't have a choir, we didn't have an orchestra, I'll tell you the most greatest thing you came to see is Jesus Christ being lifted up, amen? Christ being lifted up because he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw men into myself. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are here for one reason, not to get mesmerized by the technology, not to get mesmerized by what's on the screen, not to get mesmerized by what the special event is, or what special food's being served there. We're not to be mesmerized by those things. The number one thing we ought to be mesmerized, that ought to be a buzz in our hearts, is that Jesus Christ is God. Amen. That Jesus Christ died for your sins and mine, and that we lift him up on high. And today, we, it is our goal and desire to lift up Jesus Christ on high today. And so I want you to see some things this morning about the worship of Jesus Christ. Today, our central thought today is the truth about the worship of Christ. We want to see what right worship is and wrong worship is. And listen, we're living a day and time where the worship of God is so distorted and is twisted, and we've got to go back to the scriptures, and we've got to go back to what the Bible says about the proper worship of God. Number one this morning, I want you to see with me the priority of worship. I want you to see with me the priority of worship. The word worship in our King James English-speaking Bible is found 188 times. Worship literally means in the Old and New Testament to bow down to, to reverence, to give obeisance and honor to. Let me repeat that. You want to write that down. Worship means to bow down to, to reverence, give obedience and honor to. Listen, brother and sister in Christ and friend today, we are commanded to worship God. 
We are commanded to worship God. Where is that found? In the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20. Go there, please. <clears throat> Exodus 20, verse 2 to 4, verse 2 to 5. <clears throat> Would you listen, please, as I read? I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Isn't it interesting to know that the very first commandment God gave to his people that is still here today for us is that we're not to bow down to any other image. We're not to make any other image that we bow down to. We're to reverence God. We're not to take his name in vain. It is a command that you and I worship God. Now I want to commend you this morning that you had enough character and enough Christianity and enough conviction to come to church on a beautiful Sunday morning, the last Sunday of June, on a beautiful weather day, to come to church. You didn't go fishing or somewhere else there. Thank you for being in church today. And thank you for being here for one reason. That is the worship of our God. Listen, if we came, there's a lot of things we come to church for. And we thank God for all those reasons. But the number one reason why we're here is to worship our God. We are commanded to worship God. Notice something else. Worship is always one-sided. It is not two-sided. Worship is one-sided. We are to worship God. God is not here to worship us. Amen? We are to worship God. Now listen to this. The psalmist said this in Psalms 29. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Number verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I wish I had time to just dissect and preach it. Psalms 29 is a powerful psalm, but it's a psalm of worship. And it starts off by saying, give unto the Lord. Worship is giving to the Lord. Worship is giving God your time. Worship is giving God your attention. Worship is giving God your adoration. Worship is giving God your offering. Worship is giving God your love. Giving, worship is giving God your your best. Worship is taking off your watch and not worrying about the time and not worrying about setting other appointments. Worship is giving your undivided attention to God who made you. I worship, remind you this morning, worship is what we give to the Lord and not what God gives to us. Worship is showing our adoration, our affection, our commitment, our dedication and sacrifice to the Lord. Hey, worship is when we acknowledge God is our creator. Worship is when we acknowledge God is our father. Worship is when we acknowledge God is our savior. Worship is when we acknowledge God is our you better say amen or we're not going home today, amen. Worship is when we, when we worship God as our sustainer. We worship God as our helper. We worship God as the Lamb of God for sinners slain. We worship him as the bread of life. Listen, are you hungry today? He's got bread that will satisfy your soul. We worship him as the water of life. Are you thirsty today? Listen, he's the water that satisfies every thirst. We worship him today because he's the true vine and the father is the husband. We worship him because he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. We worship him today because he's the resurrection, the life, and he that believeth on him, though you are dead, yet shall he live, he said. I remind you this morning, we worship God because he's almighty God. We worship God because he's the most high God. We worship God because he's everlasting God. We worship God because he's the God who provides Jehovah Jireh. We worship God because he's Jehovah our banner. We worship God because he's Jehovah our righteous. Hey, listen, this morning, you can get excited and wave your handkerchief and take off your shoes and jump up and down and say, glory to God, we worship God today. We worship God. We worship when we worship God. It is the outpouring of our hearts and praising God through our words and songs of praise. Worship is to be reverent. Where's, listen, listen, look up here. Worship is to be spiritual, not sensual. 
Praise bands are not found in the Bible. Worship teams are not found in the Bible. The worship team is God's people, amen? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I'm saying to you this morning, everything has been twisted and distorted about. Worship is be reverent. Worship is spiritual, not such as God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is to be holy. Worship, worship is when we're overwhelmed with a sense of God's attributes and God's majesty. Worship to draw you and me to tears that God would look on a sinner like me and God would consider someone like you and me that God would take time out of 7.7 billion people in the world to care about your need and my need this morning. I remind you today if you're a hurting individual. I remind you today if you're an overwhelmed individual. I remind you today if you're fearing going to see the doctor. You're fearing a blood test. You're fearing a diagnosis. You're fearing getting a doctor's biopsy report. You're fearing what's going to happen tomorrow. May I remind you, cast all you care upon him, for he careth for you. I remind you today, we have a God that's worthy of our worship. Worship does not draw attention to self. Worship does not draw attention to a style. Worship involves my entire devotion. Worship involves my entire sacrifice. Worship is not confined to a time limit. Psalms 95, 6, the psalmist said, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I say this morning, we see the priority of worship. Number two, go with me, chapter 12. Number two, very quick. I want you to see the participation in worship. The participation in worship. <clears throat> in chapter 12, we find in verses 1 to 9, 1 to 11, six, several days after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And if you didn't hear the last week's message, go on our podcast to get that. Lazarus is raised from the dead. A man by the name of Simon the leper, he was a former leper. He got healed too, amen. But he still called Simon the leper, but he was healed and he was well. And the Bible tells us something that's wonderful. Would you notice this? It says in verse 1 there, then Jesus six days uh, before the Passover came to Bethany. Now please understand the timelines because beginning chapter 12, it's a timeline that's counting down several days before Christ would be crucified. Now in Christian circles, they would call what's going on here Palm Sunday. We're not emphasizing that right at the moment. What I want you to see is that six days before the Passover, Jesus went back to Bethany. And there at Bethany, he went there, and a man by the name of Simon the leper prepared a supper for Jesus. Would you notice verse 2? There they made him a supper. Can I just pause and give you a thought here? It's a good thing to make a supper for Jesus. Amen? It's a good thing to make some time for Jesus. It's a good thing to prepare something for Jesus. Because I remind you, the marriage supper of the Lamb, he's going to prepare a feast you've never seen before. Amen. That feast he's going to give you and I, the marriage supper of the Lamb, if you're saved and meet the Lord in the, up in heaven, oh, it's going to be wonderful. But they, this man, Simon the leper, out of his gratefulness of his heart, he said, I'm going to invite Jesus to my home. By the way, is Jesus invited to your home? He invited Jesus to his home, and this entourage was there, and it was a wonderful dinner. And we see three personalities that arise all this. It's the same family we dealt with in John chapter 11. We see Martha, Mary, and, and we see this, the brother Lazarus. Listen, we see Martha, typical is Martha. She's just busy serving. The Bible says Martha served. She had a servant's heart. Thank God for people who love to serve. Thank God for people that are serving. By the way, if you're not serving, you're sinning. You need to get involved in serving, amen? We see Lazarus there. Lazarus is in a different position than we've seen before. 
when Jesus came to their home, we really didn't see Lazarus anywhere present at that time. But now Lazarus, because he's so thankful for what Jesus did and giving him his life back and giving him a second chance, Lazarus is sitting at the table with them that were eating with him, and he's just soaking up everything he could. And, and I said this last week, Lazarus was at the place in life. He said, you know, I don't know how much more time I've got on this second time around, but I'm going to make as much of it as I can. I want to get as much of Jesus as I can. By the way, is that your thought this morning? Do you want to get as much of Jesus as you can? Then we see something about Mary. We see Martha serving. We see, we see, we see Lazarus sitting. But man, we see, look at Mary right now. We see Mary here. We see something spectacular about Mary. Mary does something in verse 3 that catches everyone's partic- uh, uh, just attention. And we see in verses 3 and 4 how Mary was participating in the act of worship. And Mary did something very interesting. We look at verse 3, and the Bible says that Mary just got up after they'd eaten dinner, and she took something that had already been purchased. Now, I don't have anything to dramatize this for you, but she had this little box about this big. A little box about that big. It was called an alabaster box because of its design. And inside that box, it contained very costly, very expensive spikenard ointment. Spikenard ointment had to be attained. They had to go way up to the mountains of India to get those. And you'd have to get, collect a lot of those and compress them and squeeze them. And whatever the process was to derive the o- ointment out of that. It was a very strong-smelling ointment. And it was an ointment typically was so strong-smelling and not pungent per se, but so aromatic that they would use this ointment on the bodies of someone who was deceased to kind of just stifle the decaying process on them. And she had bought that after her brother had passed away, she had bought that, that spike nard and, and she had uh, brought it there and thought, I'm going to put it on my, my brother there. And, and she never had to use it, thank God, because, because God, God, Jesus gave her brother back. And, and Mary had been thinking about for several days about, you know, Jesus did something great and I had such little faith in him. And I thought, I, I just, I lost faith in that he could even do anything great like this. And I had no faith in his ability to raise the dead. And, and she was so, perhaps of anybody there, she was about probably as thankful as Lazarus that what God had done. And so after everybody had eaten and People were serving and people were just enjoying being at the house of Simon the leper and enjoying the dinner. Mary did something that just kind of changed the whole atmosphere, you know. She just took that little box and she walks up to Jesus and people wonder, what are you doing? And they recognize that box that contained the spike dart and they're thinking, well, wait a minute, that's what you normally use. We typically, in our tradition, pour that on the bodies of dead people. And she did something remarkable. It had a stem on it. And on the stem, she broke the stem off. She broke the stem off the box. And she broke the stem. And she, she did. People are watching and kind of with, they're, they're holding their breath saying, what is she going to do? And as you read the, correla- the, co- the correlated, you know, correlating sp- uh, scriptures in Matthew and Mark and Luke, we read that she took the ointment and she pours it on the head of Jesus. And she pours it on his head as if she was pouring on a dead body per se, but he was living. And she poured it on his head, and the Bible tells in the other correlating scriptures that it rolled down his head. And you can just imagine the beauty of this, the, the oil, this wonderful, sweet-smelling o- ointment is rolling down his head and making his way down his garments, and it's covering all of them. But what John draws our attention to in verse 3, it says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and she anointed the feet of Jesus. The attention is called to Mary's action in worship. John wanted to see something that was unusual and something that was not the normal picture there, because anybody could stand and pour something something on someone's head, but she did something remarkable. She not only poured the oil on his head, but John draws her attention to the fact that she poured the ointment on his feet. And let me tell you something today. You know, she didn't, she wasn't being frugal and pouring little amounts, and she didn't just take a teaspoon or a measuring cup and pour it. She poured the entire contents out. She gave no, she gave no, 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 no concern about how much would come out. I mean, there was a porous amount of that coming out of it. Just a generous amount of the ointment was flowing out of this box, and it's flowing onto Jesus. It's going down his garden, but she bows down 
down, and she kneels down with both her knees, and she pours it on his feet. And everybody's watching her because nobody had done that. Nobody had washed his feet when he had come in, and nobody cared about the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. But she took her this precious ointment, which the Bible says was equivalent to one year's wages. Now you think with me for a minute. What did your W-2 say about your wages last year? Or what did the bottom line of your schedule see? Or whatever it may be. What did, what, did, what did you earn last year? Okay, Can you imagine giving last year's, all of last year's wages for a box of ointment that you're going to pour on Jesus Christ? Can you imagine the lavishness of pouring out all of that ointment? And let's just say, and I'm just, I don't know what it is because I, I haven't kept up the numbers, but just say, say for compensation purposes, let's say compensation, if the average household income, the average income of one worker in a home was $50,000 here in the United States, or here in California, let's say in San Leandro, can you imagine that box would, in its equivalency, contain $50,000 being poured out on Jesus Christ? And she pours it out on his feet, and she takes her hair, and with her beautiful, long-flowing hair, which the Bible says that the glory of every woman is her hair. And she took her beautiful hair, and she kind of flipped it over, and with her hair, she could have found a towel she didn't choose to. She wanted to show her love and adoration for Jesus, and all of Mary's in this. Listen, all of Mary's income was in her worship, and all of Mary's heart was in her worship. And she takes her hair, and she starts to rub it around the feet of Jesus and rub it very carefully. And uh, if you would, she's wiping his feet with her hair. I can imagine wiping someone's feet with my sleeve. And I can imagine wiping somebody's feet with tearing off another sleeve. And I can imagine taking a towel, wiping their feet. And I can imagine even using my, but can imagine using your hair. And Mary spent whatever time necessary. We're not told she rushed. We're not told she walked off somewhere. She took her time. She just wanted Jesus to know. And listen, when she took her time, the odor of the ointment was starting, the aromaticness started to fill that room. And it was all over her hair. It was all over her. It was all over Jesus. And, and listen, that spikenard ointment was so strong in its fragrance. It was all over the room and the bible tells us this in verse 3 then took mary a pound of ointment sparkling very costly and anointed the feet of jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment hey watch this this morning when she did that it caught the attention of every single person that was in that room everything came to standstill there was no more serving there was no more talking there was no more chatter there was no more and listen everything that was going on came to standstill and the focus of attention was on this woman who participated in worship by pouring out this ointment all on the lord jesus christ All of her was in that act. She was abounding in her worship. She was appreciative in her worship. While some were caught by surprise and the fragrance captured the smell senses of everyone in the room, there were some who were not as happy about it. We see Mary is appreciative. We see Mary in her abundance. We see Mary is attacked. Right there, the treasure of the moment there, Judas, who held the bag. Judas got very angry because as time was wearing on, Judas was showing his displeasure about the Jesus and, and all that was going on. And, and Judas got very angry. If you look at verse 4 and verse 5, and he said, he got very angry and he said, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now he knew the exact cost of that. He had costed that thing out. He knew that a pound of spikenard ointment in an alabaster box was equal to one denarii or the equivalent of one, one soldier's wages a day. And it was equivalent to, if you would, to one entire year's wages. And he says, why was this sold and given to the poor? Now to tell you the truth, he wasn't interested in the poor. The Bible tells later on, because Jesus knows all things, he said that because Judas held the bag, and the Bible says he was a thief. Now, you be careful of this. God knows exactly what you are. Amen? 
I mean, it's right there. He's a thief. He was stealing from God. Here's a woman pouring out her heart and giving her best, and she's being criticized by somebody who's a thief. Now, if you're not tithing to God, God calls you a thief too. Amen? Will man rob God, he said in Malachi 3.10? And my, my, my essence and my message is not about that, but I'm just saying this morning, you look at, you look at uh, Mary, what she's doing, she's pouring out this greatness and she's being criticized. Like, let me tell you this morning, if you pour out your life and give your very best and participation in Jesus, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be attacked. Why are you doing this? Why wasn't this sold? And why was this doing this? And why isn't it doing that? And I like Jesus' response. Jesus, Jesus approves of her participation. He said in verse 7, let her alone. Let her alone. Mindset of the typical person today, if someone gives a lavish gift to God, three things come out of that. First thing is, why did you give so much? Second thing comes up, why didn't you spread it out over a period of time? Third thing comes up, your tax bracket says you can't deduct all that. You don't give to Jesus because of tax reasons. You give to Jesus because you love him. You better say amen to that. Amen? That's right. You think she was worrying about the tax write-off? Do you think she was worrying about getting a tax deductible receipt? Do you think she was worrying about who, who applauded her? No. All she cared about was that she had the proof of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, this morning, when we participate in worship like a Mary with all of our heart, what counts more than anything else is that God approves of what you're doing there. Oh, this morning we see the participation of worship. What kind of participation did we come prepared to do today? Would you notice the third thing this morning? We see the priority in worship. We see the participation in worship. Notice in verses 12 to 19, would you notice the perspective in worship? <clears throat> the Bible gives us some idea of what's going on here. The, the, the pressure was on, starting with verse 9. There were Jews that believed on Jesus because they saw Lazarus. Passover is a few days away. And Passover was one of those feasts of the Jews where Jews came from all over to Jerusalem Males were required, it was one of the feasts of males, all males were required to show up there. And so you can imagine that it was a very, very, Jerusalem was being filled and overflowing with people. Jews were coming to their city, their beloved city to celebrate the Passover. They'd done this many times before. As they were assembling there in the crowds, something else caught their attention. Here was a man, a dignified looking man riding on the back of a donkey. Not just any donkey, it was an ass's colt. It was a young donkey that man had never ridden upon. It was never broken in by any man. No man had ever been on the back of this donkey. And even though it had not been broken in, this donkey was in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus rode on that. And you see, king, kings rode on donkeys. When they rode throughout their cities in donkeys, it represented that he, he came with peace and he came with authority and he came with the idea that he was a king. And the people, there, the jury was kind of out for up, leading up that moment. Is Jesus really who he is? But word is spread about the raising of Lazarus. And of course, Jerusalem and Bethany were in walking distance place and they weren't very far from each other. And so as Jesus comes in, the, all the Jews are coming together. They said, that's him, that's him. That's the one we heard about. That's the one that calmed the storms on the sea. And that's the one that fed the multitude with 
five loaves and two fishes, and then later again for a few fragments of fish, and he, fell, he, he, he uh, served several thousand more. And this is the one who raised this man from the dead, and this is the one who gave sight to the blind, and this is the one who gave hearing to the deaf, and all of those things, and the people were there, and the people said, this must be him, this must be him. Look at him, he's coming in. And in their mind, you see a distorted worship by these people. They were distorted in their perception because as they saw Jesus riding in, they were thinking of a great military commander coming in. They were thinking Christ was coming in to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire. They said, oh, the persecution is done and the oppression is done. He's going to be the Jesus we want. He's going to be the king we want to lead the way for, for war and for victory. And they thought, oh, certainly this must be him. So they cut down some palm branches and they started chanting from Psalms 118 verse 25, which you notice verse 13. They said, Hosanna, the word Hosanna means save the king. Hosanna is taken from Psalms 118, verse 25, which says, save now, Lord, we beseech thee. That's what Hosanna means. Save now, Lord, we beseech thee. And it's similar to what the English say, God save the king. And so the people are just chanting together in unison. They're saying, oh, our king has come. God save the king. And though they recognized, they were right and recognized Jesus as king, they thought he was coming as a political king. They thought he was coming as a military king. They thought he was coming to help them overcome their foes Romans, and that was not the kind of king. Let me tell you this morning, Jesus is king over all those things, but he's king of kings, and he's Lord of lords, and he's the potentate of all potentates, and he's greater than all kings. There is no king but Jesus Christ this morning. And as he made his way in, they had a distorted idea and a distorted view of who Jesus was. As he made his way into that city, they thought, oh, this certainly must be him. And they're waving their palm leaves, and they're taking off their outer coats, and they're laying it down the way, thinking, oh, our king has come. He's going to fulfill our wishes and our dreams. Let me remind you this morning, Jesus Christ is king and Jesus Christ is always here but Jesus Christ is not here to fulfill your wishes and mine. He's here to be glorified in your life and mine. Distorted per perception and worship is when in our vain imagination we try to make Jesus be what, he want, what we want him to be. Jesus Christ is not a rock star. Jesus Christ is not a dictator. Jesus Christ is Savior and King. You see a distorted perception. Then there were delusional perceptions. And all that's going on was fulfilling what Zechariah 9.9 prophesied. It says in verse 14, Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, this is Zechariah 7, not 9, 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, but he's not coming as the king they thought he would come as or that they wanted. Well, the Pharisees are not very happy because the Pharisees, if you would, if you notice their statement in just a moment, the Pharisees are feeling like their market share and their control of the people is lessening. That's a sad thing that churches have to feel like they've got to have market share or they have to have control. And the Bible says in verse 16, These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the, dead, out of the grave, raised him from the dead, they bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for they had heard that he had done this miracle. Now remember, I said there was a distorted perception. They came up because of Lazarus. They came because they wanted to see, if you want, they wanted to see a phenomena. What they really needed to come out to do is to see that Jesus Christ, the King and the Savior, was there. Well, the Pharisees in the background, and they're upset. Notice what happens here, verse 18. For this, it says, verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. Now, the truth was, the world was not going after him. But their perception was, we're losing control. 
We're losing market share. We're not, we don't have the dominance that we had before. And so these people are going out to them. I'm just saying this morning, we must be very, very careful that we don't have the wrong perception about worship. Worship is not what we get out of God. Worship is not about what kind of king do we imagine Jesus to be. And worship is not what Jesus fulfills for you and does for you. Worship is about you realizing he is king regardless of any other fact. And Jesus is God. And we are to worship him and we're to adore him and we're to love him. And our perception should be nobody else is more deserving on a Sunday morning of my worship than Jesus Christ. Wow, so we see the priority in worship. We see the participation worship. We see the perception of worship. But you notice the presentation of worship. All oh, this is going on, and we see that there were some other people that were in Jerusalem besides the Jews. I thank God there were other people. There were Gentiles that believed on Christ and believed on God. And because it was a richly Grecian culture. The Bible says some Greeks came to the feast as well. And these Greeks who came had a heart tender towards the things of God. It very well could be that they were proselytes to the Jewish faith. And word is spread to them about Jesus raising this man from the dead and all that he did. The Bible says in verse 20, which you notice, verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Now, this is very interesting. Nobody mentioned here of the Jews was really seeking after Jesus. They were, doing, they were going through the motions, but they really weren't just kind of pursuing after Jesus. These Greeks came up among them, and they came to one of the disciples by the name of Philip, who was at Bethsaida. Now, somehow Philip knew them, and he knew them, and they knew each other, and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Interesting to know that Philip had some contacts and some connections among these Greeks, and they came to him and say, Philip, you're one of his disciples, and Philip, you, you certainly are, are connected to him. We want to see this Jesus. We want to get presented to him. We want to get introduced to him. And Philip didn't know what to do. He got caught off guard. He was like, oh, okay, I, you know, I'll, I'll find a way to get you to him. And so he did the best thing that he could, could think of. He went to his good friend Andrew. He says, Andrew, there's some Greeks here. They want to see Jesus. Andrew said, no problem. Let's go together. And he takes Philip with him, and with together they take these Greeks and they present them to Jesus Christ. Now watch us this morning as we look at this. There's a presentation worship. Thank God that when we worship God biblically and thank God when we worship God correctly and we worship God from the bottom of our heart, listen, through the sense of worship, God uses that to bring people to himself. God uses that in an evangelistic way to bring people to himself. And listen, when we worship God correctly, listen, Jesus said this, if I be lifted up, I will draw men into myself. And these Greeks here, they were watching everything unfold there and they said, said, we've got to get somebody to get us to Jesus. Did you know worship on a Sunday morning and worship on a Sunday night and worship on a Wednesday night when we have church? That's an opportunity. We lift up Jesus Christ. You can bring somebody to hear the gospel and through the worship of God and we worship God through the preaching of his word and we worship God as we sing the congregational hymns and we worship God when we take up the offerings and we worship God when we say praise the Lord and we worship God when we say amen and we worship God when we say God is on the throne. We do all those things. Listen, there are some who want to meet Jesus Christ. And you and I are in a very favorable position when we can take our, use our influence and use what gifts we have to bring people to Jesus. Hey, I'm thankful today that even though Philip was off guard, caught off guard, he had a friend by the name of Andrew. The Bible says in verse 22, and Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, when the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of our adoration and the center of our worship, it, we, it will result in you and me finding ways of bringing unsaved people to him. Listen this morning, I'm going to give you a phrase. When we have services at church, 
church. I've ingrained this with our staff and with our deacons. I've ingrained it with you. We have services. We gear our service to be evangelistic service. Every service is an opportunity to present people to Christ, to bring people to the Lord, for the gospel to be preached, for Christ to be lifted up. We will find a way to get the gospel in every message. We will find a way so somebody's coming who has no knowledge of God and needs to understand who God is, or somebody who's far away from God and needs to be reconnected to him. They can learn. They can come back to Jake and come to Jesus. It's our opportunity presenting people to the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and someone gave you a track and someone gave you an invitation and someone asked you to come to church. You know why they did that? Because they came here because Jesus Christ is the center of our worship and they want you to be part of that worship and more importantly, to bring you to Christ. And I'm just saying today, what a wonderful opportunity every person in this room has that we can use the worship of Christ on every service to bring people to a saving knowledge of who he is. Thank God for Philip and Andrew. They presented men to Christ. They brought these Greeks to Jesus. They didn't make it hard for them to find Christ. And listen, we never, church should never be a place that's too hard for someone to find the Lord. Amen? Well, we see the presentation of worship. Worship involves evangelism, witnessing the proclamation of the gospel. But you notice in verses 23, 26, we're going to be to a close, but you notice the productivity in worship. Yes, there's a priority in worship, and yes, there's participation in worship, and yes, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's perception we must have in worship, and yes, there's presentation in worship, but I want you to notice the productivity in worship. Jesus had, they brought these Greeks to him. And notice verse 22 again. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, Hey, Jesus, there's some men here that want to meet you. And you notice verses 23, 27, Jesus tells us something astounding. Jesus answered them, and this is in the presence of even among those Greeks. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Just a couple of chapters before that, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. What hour is he talking about? He's just three to four days away before he would be lifted up on the cross, he would die for the sins of the whole world. His hour was come. The timeline was there and then. And Jesus wanted them to capture two things. Number one, he wanted people to capture the fact that Jesus is there and he's on a timeline. And the reason why he's there, yes, thank God he was being worshipped, but the reason why he was there was to remind everybody there that he would die for their sins. There were those who just wanted to keep seeing signs and wonders and signs and wonders and miracles, but they would not believe. And so Christ said, listen, the hour has come when I must offer my life back. Later on, he says, the, he says later on in verse 27, notice the last part of verse 27, he says, for this cause came I unto this hour, for this cause and for this hour. And God, you can imagine in, in the heart of Jesus, inside of his bosom, was the pressure building up, the fact that he was going to die. And so he wanted to shift the focus as he saw these two faithful disciples, Philip and Andrew, bringing these Greeks to them. He wanted to teach right at that moment how worship, our worship, there must be productivity in our worship. We must understand that worship of God, the teaching of the word of God, and the preaching of God's word is used to, by God to build us up in his word. And as he builds us up in his word, he takes that, he takes what's embedded there to help you and I become fruitful Christians, to help us understand that every one of us can be productive and every one of us can be fruitful and every one of us can be used of God. And he tells us important Christian principle, which he notices in verse 24. He says, now the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. 
But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Would you notice in verse 24, Jesus draws from the world of agriculture, something that everybody in that audience was very familiar with. He drew from the world of agriculture. He drew from something familiar that everyone was aware of. And he talked about the process of how wheat is reproduced. And he says here in verse 24, except a corn of wheat. What he's referring to there is the kernel on the top of a stalk of wheat. He's saying here, it, that kernel must be broken off. And for it to reproduce, that kernel of wheat must fall off or be broken off or detached from the head. And as it is, so, does so, notice verse 24, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground. He says here, when the head or the kernel, that corn of wheat, breaks off the stalk, it is separated from the rest of the stalk. In order for it to find new life, it must break itself off. It must find itself in the cold earth beneath and nestle itself there in the earth and there while it's lonely there while it's alone it will draw from the nutrients of the soil and over time notice what he says in verse 24 when it falls to the ground it dies and in fact it's basically separated it's like it's dead because it's no longer part of the stock it can't give off anything else and if you would it's died because it's no longer connected to the stock but now in the ground it finds new life because the nutrients start to feed it and he says except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But he says, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now he draws from the world of agriculture that everybody said, we understand that. We know how the process of reproduction occurs with wheat harvest. And we realize we've got to break off the kernel of, of corn and it's got to fall into the ground. And if it falls into the ground, that rich soil, it draws from the richness of the soil and it's new, it gets the nutrients from it. And then a new stock comes up and as many corn kernels fall, many more stocks of wheat. Can we understand that? And Christ made a statement that he drew to the analogy of spiritual service to God. He says, but if it dies, it bringeth forth much fruit. And you know what Jesus is saying? There are two things. Number one, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. He says, listen, I'm, I'm like that corn of wheat. I'm going to be broken off from the rest of society, and I'm going to be separated from all of you, and I'm going to have to die on the cross, and I'm going to be all alone, and no man's going to be with me. No wonder he would cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he said, I will be broken off, and I will abide all alone. And he says, I will die. I will die for the sins of the world. And he said, but I will, but I'll bring forth much fruit. He says in verse 24, when I come back, I will bring forth more fruit. He's talking about his resurrection. In a sense, he was giving an, an, an illustration about his death and his resurrection. But he's also talking about spiritual, spiritual service to God. Listen to me very carefully. I believe every single brother and sister in Christ here, you want to serve God. And you want to serve God productively. And you want to serve God so that your service for God counts. But he's telling us a very important principle. If we're going to live for God, if we're going to do something for the Lord, if God's going to bless and use us, listen, there comes a time and place in our Christian life when we must die. I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritually. When we get to the place, we die to our pleasures. We die to self. We die to our desires. We die to things that we normally did. We die in terms of living for ourselves, and we live for God. He says, when you decide to die, if you would, Paul said, I die daily. When we die to self, when we crucify the flesh, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, we do that. We are alone. We have did something nobody else will do, and we feel we're alone. We feel like we're isolated. But he says, as you're there, and you draw upon Jesus Christ, who is our nutrient and gives us what we need. He says, we bring forth much fruit. May I tell you this morning, if you're struggling today of being productive for God, if you're struggling today wondering why isn't God blessing my efforts, if you're struggling today to wondering why isn't I'm not, not seeing more happening, more being done, may I tell you today, it might be right here in verse 24, that maybe some of us need to pull aside somewhere and we need to die to self. We need to die to the parting. We need to die to our time being spread out all over the place and maybe die to the fact 
We need to give God an hour a day in prayer and die to the fact we need to give half an hour a day in reading our Bible. And maybe we need to die to the fact that we've got to give up an hour here, an hour there. We need to die to self. Instead of going shopping, we go so many. And maybe we need to die to self and realize instead of partying there, we're going to go and proclaim the word of God. And I'm saying today, as Jesus was telling them, he says, listen, he that loses his life shall find it. And that's what he says in verse 26. If any man serve me, Verse 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. That's the corn of wheat, the kernel that wants to stay attached to the stock. He said, Pastor, you don't understand. There's so much to see. I understand that. God's not against you traveling. God's not against you and me vacationing. And God's not against you and I having a happy life. By the way, he said in John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and they may have it more abundantly. He's not against you being happy. He's not against you having things. But what he's saying, we've got to be very careful. Because for all of us, listen to me this morning, all of us, including me, all of us, we struggle, and we struggle badly with loving ourselves. Me first. Take care of me, my career, my financial goals. Whatever it may be. And he said in verse 25, he that loved his life, you're going to lose it. Not in this life, but life to come. Young people today, what are you living for? Well, I'm going to get my degree, okay, then what? Well, I'll get my job, then what? Well, I hope to make money, then what? You haven't hit harsh realities. You haven't faced your company closing up and relocating to a foreign country. You haven't been downsized. You haven't lost your job. You ladies don't understand what it means to be discriminated against. You guys don't understand what it means that you don't, if you don't have the politics in here, so you're going to be put down. You don't understand today that you're going to face the harsh realities of life, that, that it's all about politics and all about who you know and about a lot of things that maybe you're not ready for. You can attain all you want. You can say, well, that's my model there, but I'm going to tell you there's some harsh realities of life. If you are living to find your life, you're not going to find it in those things. He said in verse 25, but he that hateth thine. Now, he doesn't mean you hate yourself and stab yourself and cut your wrist. He's not talking about that. He's just saying, when, when there's more of us here, there's less of Christ here. But when there's more of Christ here, there's ultimately it's going to be less of us here. It's just saying, you know what? I've just got to realign my priorities. I've got to realign that there must be a dying to self, a dying to things that I want to do in living for Jesus Christ. He's teaching us the essence of productivity. Notice he says in verse 26, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. True worship teaches us the secret to productive service for Christ. The kernel wheat must break off. It must abide alone. Being that cold, dark earth, but it's the draws from those nutrients why it's by itself. It giveth forth much life. You see, if you would just pull off a little bit and die to self, it'd be amazing what God can do through your life. How many more people you can influence? How many more lives could be touched? I'm just saying today, God's not against the things you're doing. It's just when those things become more important than Him. We see the priority in worship. We see the participation in worship. We see the perspective in worship. We see a presentation in worship. We see... We see the productivity, productivity worship as we close. Would you notice the last thing is very quick. 
But you notice the persuasion in worship. And I want you to notice as we go down, and you'll have to read some of these verses a little bit later, but go down to verse 44 with me. The rest of the chapter, from actually verse 37 down, but go to verse 44. I boil down to this. Worship points back to Jesus Christ. True worship points to Jesus Christ. Now, Christ has said these things, and the Pharisees didn't want to hear what he said. And you have to remember, the Pharisees were concerned because they were losing their market share. They were losing their dominance and their influence. They made statements like all the world has gone after him. All the world has not gone after him. What they're really saying is we're losing our influence here. And so there was, this, there was this murmuring on the backside, and there was complaining about what's going on. And so we read about some, some different things about people. We read about some who believed on Jesus Christ, and that's a wonderful thing. And uh, we're thankful that people put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he, he called them out to attention that he's the light of the world. And he, he said, walk in the light while the light is with you. And he talked about them believing on him. But then there were the Pharisees and others who chose not to believe on him. And here's the essence of what I want to say. The persuasion we must come to this morning as we look at the matter of worship, it boils down to one word. That's faith. Boy, that's the faith and belief. Because it comes down to this. Do you, do you have faith? Do you believe what Jesus Christ is? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe he's the word of God? Do you believe he's all truth? Do you believe he's all righteous? Do you believe he died for your sins? Do you believe he rose again from the dead? Because he said there's two groups of people that are here when it comes down to worship. There are those who believe and those who reject. And listen, he says, as you believe, he says the persuasion and worship, it boils down to this. There's all this talk and chatter going on among the, the, among the Pharisees. And other. In fact, some of the Pharisees, the elders of the Pharisees, they actually did believe on him. But the Bible says they hid their faith. They didn't want the other Pharisees to know because the Bible says they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And we just read earlier where God gave his approval to Mary. Mary just outwardly, she lavishly poured out the context, a year's wages of ointment on the feet of Jesus and wiped it with her hair. And, and he said, man, he says, leave her alone. And he was saying, listen, that's my approval upon her. Now you have these Pharisees that are out there who are the religious elite, the religious leaders, and the people that, the, the, the men the people looked up to. And they were the ones who there were some of them. They said, well, we, we believe in what he's all about, but we just can't outwardly show that. And there were those who were, who were believers, but they, but they really didn't want other people to know that too and their belief was somewhat superficial because their belief was based upon the miracle they believed the miracle but they didn't believe in the source of the miracle which was jesus christ so what you notice in verse 44 he says he that believeth on me believeth not on me but on him that sent me and he that seeth me seeth him that sent me i am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness and listen to verse 47 and if any man hear my words and believe not i judge him not for i came not to judge the world but to save the world did you get what jesus is talking about of these verses He's saying, there are those who believe, and there are those who don't believe. Now, would you notice verse 48 as we close? He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Let me read that again to you. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now, here's what Jesus was saying, and we're done. He was saying, listen, there are those you've made up your mind. You either believe, and your belief may be superficial, or your belief is very genuine. And then there are those who reject. And by the way, those who are superficial, they're on the same platform as those who reject, because whatever the next wind that would blow, they would follow with the rejection side. 
There was those, he was talking about those Pharisees and Jews who would not receive him. They did not believe who he was. They wanted to see another miracle. And Jesus said, no more miracles. I have proven who I am. I've come from the Father. I and the Father am one. I am God. I'm full of grace and truth. I am God. He said, you've got to accept me for who I am and believe that I'm going to die for your sin. He said, now, he says in verse 47, 48, he that rejected me, Rejecting him means, no, I don't want to receive Jesus Christ. Rejecting him is saying, I don't need you, Jesus. Rejecting him is saying, I can find another way to heaven. Rejecting him is saying, I don't need Christ to get heaven, to be, to be pleasing to God. If you reject Jesus Christ, and you reject his, by the way, if you reject him, you reject his words. He says here, you have one in heaven that will judge you. God the Father will judge you. And here's what he's saying as we close. If you're not willing to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, in essence, you've rejected him. And if you reject him, listen, the day's going to come. God is recording everything going on in our lives on his camcorder and the great white throne judgment. As we sit there and watch our life unfold, every single time you heard the gospel, every single time you were given a gospel track, every time you came to a Baptist church like this and the gospel was preached, and you said, not today, Lord, not today. I know that Baptist preacher wants to get saved today, but not today, Lord, not today. I'll come back a more convenient time another day. He said he that rejected me and rejected my words has one in heaven that will judge him. And he says, the words that I spoke, and notice what he says in verse 48. He says here, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Let me tell you what this morning, the word of God you're hearing preach and Jesus Christ who's being lifted up and Christ being crucified, the word that you're hearing today, if you refuse to receive him, if you receive, refuse to get saved, that same word that you heard today, that same word you've heard every preaching service, that word that you read on the gospel track, that word will judge you one day at the grave white throne judgment that's pretty scary i didn't know and you're going to hear that preacher told you john 12 48 you say i didn't know no he's going to point about that someone who told you about john 3 16 dr vernon mcgee who was a encouraging bible teacher for many years on the christian radio had a statement he coined he would be teaching through the bible and he would make this statement, this old southern Texas drawl. He said, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where context made. This is where it really becomes real. This is where it becomes real. The rubber meets the road here. You're either going to receive him or you're going to reject him. God wants you to be saved this morning. What you heard today are sobering words that one day will incriminate you if you don't get saved before you leave this life. Get saved today. Don't put it off another day. Be persuaded this morning that you believe in Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again from the dead and offers you the gift of eternal life. And then, Christian friend, we need to examine our worship today. We're commanded to worship God. Mary gives us a model for participation. Don't tip God. Give God your best. Give God your best financially. Give God your best of your person. Give God the best of your years. Serve the Lord. Put your whole self in like Mary did. And be careful that you don't have the wrong perception about worship and who Jesus is. And use worship as an opportunity to present others to him so they can hear the gospel. And, you, and through worship, realize today that Jesus teaches us how to be a productive Christian, how we can bear forth fruit through the death of our flesh. And realize today that there can be life that comes out of that. Worship is more than just spending your time. Worship is realizing what God does through you and in you so he can be glorified.
Listen, the best thing about worship today, if you're not saved, is to get saved today. And the best thing about worship today is for you to take your, take your life right now and say, Lord, help me to change my worship, that I'll do more for Christ. I'll get involved. I'll do what I can for Jesus.